What amazing love that the Father has shown that he sent his Son. A love that all creation will sing of for eternity. A love that's seen, displayed by the God of our salvation. Let's pray to our God this morning. Lord, we recognize that it was our sin that held you there. We thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins. And we ask, Jesus, that you would this morning reveal yourself to us. That we would see you in your glory and majesty. That we would behold your face and that we would be changed. We need your help this morning as we look into your word. And so we ask that your spirit would be present here today. That we would be taught by you. That what is said today would be um, declared in confidence and truth. That I would get out of the way and that your word would be clearly seen. And that your people would delight in your truth. And those that don't know you, Lord, would see that they would repent and turn and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in your precious name. Amen. One of the common experiences to human existence is being a student. Whether that be formally or informally, learning is a part of this life. But I think one of the greatest ways we learn is by example. Often businesses have a helpful onboarding process for new employees. A lot of the structures look different, but generally... They start with telling you what you need to know, then they show you what you need to do, and then they watch you actually do it. Examples for us are extremely helpful when it comes to learning. It's like putting flesh on a skeletal structure of truth. It makes it come alive and gives depth to our understanding. And we see this all over scripture. We find it Vibrantly in the Old Testament narratives, we find it even more in the wisdom literature. Last week, Pastor J.D. preached from Psalm 77, and it was alive in a special way. We see it a ton in the Gospels in the New Testament as well. Jesus taught using examples in creation and parables and even in his own actions to help illustrate truth. And the New Testament authors often do the same. They wrote in a similar fashion, and although They couldn't send us little short videos on how-to like we see all over YouTube. They often would write telling us of what to do and then giving us a model that shows us what it actually looks like. In our text this morning, that is exactly what Paul does. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Paul knew that these dear partners in the gospel at Philippi needed to remember their calling was to joyfully serve Christ. In chapter 2, he's been explaining that this would require them to have unity in their mission, which comes from humility in their mindset. Today, we'll be picking up in chapter 2, verses 5, where Paul is pressing home the requirement of a humble mindset as a servant of Christ. And although he had explained the meaning of humility in verses 3 and 4, he proceeds under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us both the mandate and the model for a humble mindset as servants of Christ. And for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, 
who has saved them from their sins, those who know Jesus as their Lord and Master, this mandate and model of humility is for your instruction. First, let's look at the mandate. As servants of Christ, we have a mandate for a humble mindset. Look at verse 5. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is calling these believers to have a specific mindset. They are to possess it as their own. They have been required to hold on to this sort of attitude and live according to it, especially toward one another. Since he says this mind, we need to look back to understand what he is referencing to. In verse 3 and 4, we see the definition of humility. And at the end of verse 2, he says that they are to do this of one mind. And in verse 5, he starts with have this mind. Almost as book ends to show us what this mind is in verse 3 and 4. It's not selfish ambition. It's not conceit. It's humility. This mind that we are called to have is one of humility. A humble mindset is one that is required for those who claim to be servants of Christ. But Paul is emphasizing not just the mind, but also the location. He says, among yourselves. Paul's concern for their attitudes was attitudes specifically toward one another within the church. Later, he would even call out two members from the church in chapter 4 who were in conflict, telling them to agree in the Lord. If you are a Christian, then you are called to think this way. It ought to be evident in the way you relate to your fellow believers in Christ. An attitude that counts others more significant. A mindset that looks not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you were to get a book bound with your thoughts toward others within the church over the past month, would there be a common theme in that narrative? Would it be thoughts of annoyance or avoidance or anger? Consistently seeing others as obstacles in your way. Or maybe it would be thoughts of self-perception. Regularly concerned with controlling how others view you. No matter your tendency, the problem is actually the same. You lack a mindset of humility that this passage calls us to. Either your goals or your reputation are your top priority. But that sort of thinking is inconsistent with being a servant of Christ. Too often we fail to grasp this right mindset of humility. But I don't think it's due to a bad definition. I think we can recite verses 3 and 4 by heart. What we need is to see a model of humility. We need to know what it looks like to have this sort of right thinking specifically in the area of humility. And Paul proceeds to do just that in the verses today. He not only issues this mandate for a humble mindset, but he provides a model for us as well, which is so helpful. That's why he says at the end of verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus? He is pointing us to Christ as the supreme example of humility. Let's look at verses 6 through 8 as we see the model for a humble mindset As a servant of Christ. Paul continues. Who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In effort to depict the previous decree, Paul points out the most masterful and magnificent model for humility. It's Jesus Christ himself. The most powerful and perfect picture of humility for a servant of Christ is their master. The type of humility that you and I are commanded to live by is a Christ-like humility. And the entire point of this text is that servants of Christ must have the humility of Christ. This is a beautiful Christological passage that walks us step by step in the condescension of Christ. And we need to recognize up front that this passage contains mysteries that our finite mind are unable to plumb the depths of. So our goal this morning is not to unravel this mystery, but rather to unveil it, that we might marvel at Christ. That is truly what we need this morning. And if you and I are going to have a mindset of humility, we must gaze into the humility of Christ revealed in both his pre-existence and his incarnation. First, Paul starts in verse 6 by saying, who though he was in the form of God. For us to really capture the humiliating steps that Christ took downward, we must understand the starting point. Before Jesus came to earth, he was the co-eternal, co-equal second person of the Godhead. Paul even defines what he means by the words form of God when he says later in this verse, equality with God. Jesus Christ is God. He claimed it in his life. The crowds condemned him for it. It was confirmed by his resurrection and the authors of the New Testament consistently certified that Jesus is the Son of God. Listen to how John opens his gospel account in speaking of Christ as the Word. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. One of the most fundamental descriptions of deity in Scripture is that of the title of Creator. There is only one who is ascribed the title of Creator, and that is God. One of the first things you learn about in studying God's word is in Genesis 1.1 where it says, In the beginning, God created. The author of Hebrews opens his letter to emphasize the deity of Christ as well when he said in Hebrews 1.3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ was and is and will forever be the Son of God. Even in every step of his condescension, his nature as God never changed. And that is what is meant by form of God in verse 6. It refers to the manifestation of an unalterable internal reality. It is the essential form which never changes. That means Jesus is all-powerful all-knowing, and all-present. He is the supreme God. 
full of splendor and majesty and glory. He is the ruler over all creation and the one authority who is worthy of all praise, glory, honor, and strength. This is the right response of worship to our creator. And that is what is due to Jesus Christ. But Paul wants us to see what Christ's mindset looks like as he continues in verse 6 to say, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul is displaying the humility of Christ. And he's saying it in a manner that says it's not this, this isn't what he did, but rather he did this. In the end of verse 6, Paul shows the negative. He says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We see that Christ didn't regard his rights as God as something to be held on to. Because he was God, he possessed all the divine privileges that come with that. But Christ's attitude was not to use his position for personal advantage. There was no insecurity in sorting, sort of maintaining authority and glory. Rather, it says, he emptied himself. Here we see the positive side. We see what Christ's humility does. Although there have been questions over this passage, a proper reading allows the clarity of Scripture to ring true. If we understand Paul's meaning, we must simply look at his explanation. He says the word by. He emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Both these phrases add color to Christ's humble action. Even though he had all the rights as the God of the universe, he took on the very essence and nature of a servant. Servant refers to someone who owned nothing. Everything they had, including their life, belonged to their master. The statement ought to shock us as it would its original audience. The one who owns everything claimed as his own nothing. Instead, he chose to be a slave, to bear the burdens of others. To take on this form of a servant, Christ was born as a human being. Likeness, in verse 7, refers to that which is made to be like something else, not just in appearance, but in reality. The eternal God taking on humanity. Listen to the first verse of one of my favorite songs we sing here. It says, Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, who took on flesh to ransom us. The humble mindset of Christ drove him to reject rights as the divine king and instead be born of a virgin in a lowly stable, laid in an animal feeding trough. Can you see this morning the depth of Christ's descent? To become the God-man, two natures in one person, fully and truly God and fully and truly man, 
inseparably united without mixture, confusion, separation, or division. That is Christ's humility on display for you and for me. But this drastically steep decline doesn't actually stop here. Paul continues in verse 8 to show us not just Christ-like humility but in his pre-existence, but also in his incarnation. Look again at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Christ appeared on earth, he was recognized as a man by all those who saw him. And he chose to humble himself. The way that Christ humbled himself was in this text saying, by becoming obedient. We often think of this phrase within our sinful experience. We think about learning by making mistakes. If I were to tell you that we're doing some obedience training in my house, that would be really a nice way of saying there's a lot of disobedience going on and discipline going on in the home. But that's not actually what Paul means here. Think about this for a second. The creator of the universe has all authority. He makes the rules and he is the moral standard of perfection. To obey is a creaturely duty toward their creator. Do you see how all this is connected? Christ, he didn't cling to his rights. Instead, he came down as a servant so that he could comply with God's demands, so that he could obey. Jesus said in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But Paul takes this even a step further. Not only did Christ come to obey his Father, but this obedience would be costly. Look again at verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ's humble obedience to his Father is evident throughout his entire life on earth, but it is seen most drastically in his humiliation leading to his death. This is why Jesus came. And he says this directly in John 10, 17 and 18. He said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It was the Father's will that Christ would die. And it was Christ's will to obey his heavenly Father even if it cost him his life. We see the agony of Christ's resolute obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 38 and 39. Then Jesus said to them, referring to Peter, James, and John, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. After this, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own disciples 
and then denied by another, and then abandoned by the rest. He was illegally tried, falsely accused, and although found not guilty, condemned to death anyway. The death of a criminal. And that is what Paul is getting at in this text. Not just any death, but the most shameful death imaginable. The church at Philippi would have understood the gravity of this statement. No Roman citizen was ever allowed to be crucified. It was a despicable death meant only for criminal scum. To the Jew, the death on a cross was seen as hanging, which was detestable according to the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, A hanged man is cursed by God. This curse meant being outside God's covenant people and blessing. This is the curse that Christ bore on the cross. This is Christ coming from privilege to poverty. From supremacy to scandal. From creator to cross. This is the immeasurable descent of the divine Son of God. This is the humility of Christ. These verses are filled with miraculous truths about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Both who he is and what he has done. But we must remember the primary point of this text is not merely theological. It's ethical. Look again at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ is held up for you as a model of humility. Not only to admire, but to follow. If we are to obey this command, there are things we need to know. What characterizes the mindset of humility described here? What does it look like for you to have Christ-like humility? I think there are three important points of application we need to see this morning. First, we see Christ-like humility rejects an attitude of entitlement. It rejects an attitude of entitlement. This is what Christ did, and it's what we ought to do as well. Wielding personal rights and privileges over one another for selfish advantage is the way of this broken world, but it is not the way of Christ. Matthew 20, starting in verse 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Two of them with their mom was asking, saying, can we have this position of power and authority in your kingdom? And the other ten got really upset and said, hey, why, why are you doing that? That's, that's, that's something that should be reserved for us. And Jesus calls them to himself and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This rejection of entitlement is countercultural, and it's opposed to our flesh. But what does this issue, or how does it rather, manifest itself in your life? Maybe you could look at parenting. Do you get angry with your kids? Does it breed frustration in your heart when they don't obey you? 
you are the authority in their life. Don't get me wrong. You need to teach them obedience, absolutely. But you need to understand that there's this sinful flesh wrapped in this calling of parenting that says my kids ought to look a certain way so that I look a certain way to people who see my kids. They ought to act a certain way because I deserve it. That's sinful flesh. Maybe for parenting, some of it looks like appeasing your kids. Maybe you think, I'm a parent, I know what I'm doing, I'm going to figure it out on my own. When God's written in his word for us to understand how we ought to parent. That's entitled thinking. That's saying, I don't need God's word to instruct me, I'm going to figure it out on my own. What about children? When you argue and scoff at authority, you're revealing an attitude that said, this world revolves around me. When you resist your parents, when you defy your Sunday school teachers or teachers in your life, what you're saying is, I know best and God doesn't. I don't need to obey the authorities God's put in his life, in their lives. We need to recognize that our calling is not to have a mindset that revolves around me that says, I am owed something. I deserve this. That's an attitude of entitlement. What about senior saints? It's easy after a long race to say, I've run the race, I've done my part, it's somebody else's turn. Or maybe you get agitated with others. Or maybe you get isolated saying, I've done it, I can pass on the baton. That's an attitude of entitlement. What about young adults? When you get aggravated or anxious, when life doesn't line up just right, you need to recognize that God doesn't owe you anything. But he's given you his son. And he's called you to be a servant of Christ. And you ought to live your life for him. And when things don't go as planned, you trust him. You don't say, I guess I'm not doing something right. I'm not putting enough in the machine to get out the result that I want. Where there is bad fruit in our lives, we need to look for a bad root. There's an underlying issue beyond your circumstances that the Lord is wanting to work on in your life. When you see these nasty sins pop up in your life, you need to repent of your sin, turn and trust in Jesus Christ who alone can provide forgiveness. But don't stop there. You actually need to make war against your flesh. Take these sins to the Lord and ask him to reveal how it is at the core you're being selfish. What is the root problem that keeps these weeds popping up over and over again? Talk with your small group. Ask them for input on these ideas. Ask them for counsel. Ask them for prayer. Get others involved. It's a practical way to pursue humility and fight against this attitude of entitlement. Not only does Christ-like humility reject an attitude of entitlement, but secondly, Christ-like humility requires an attitude of a servant. Requires an attitude of a servant. This really gets to the heartbeat of this entire letter of Philippians. We are called to live a life full of joyfully serving Christ. And in the context of this passage, there is a domino effect of humility leading to unity, 
which glorifies Christ. And there's this key to unlock this first domino of humility. And the key is God honoring humility. It's having an attitude of a servant. When we think of humility, we need to think of the word servant. Do you think like a servant? Not trying to please people or satisfy your own longing to be needed, but do you genuinely and routinely consider others more significant than yourself? We need a big dose of Philippians 2 about every morning, noon, and night. But when we are centered on these truths we find in God's word, we can recognize who God is and who we are in light of him. And there is a miraculous transformation that occurs by his grace. You start realizing, my identity is that of a servant of Christ. And I'm a servant of Christ toward you. And toward you. And toward you. So in the back of my head when I'm talking to someone, I'm not thinking to myself, man, I hope I don't say something dumb. Or I wonder what they're really thinking about me. Or if this person just listened to me, they would be better off. No, instead your thinking is, I want to honor my Lord by serving this person he's put in my path today. But how? How, how does that look to serve others? I think it'll look different in each situation, but you can start with these three things. You can start by listening, by learning others, and by loving them toward Christ-likeness in Christ-like humility. As we seek to listen to others and learn about them, about their needs, about what's going on in their life. If we have an attitude of Christ-like humility, we will also pursue loving them towards Christ-likeness. Third and lastly, as a point of application, Christ-like humility is revealed in costly obedience to Christ. Jesus said this best when he addressed the crowds following him in Luke 14. He said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There is a real cost to living for Christ in this life. For believers, that adds up over a lifetime of service to Christ. But we get caught up on each little life deposit we make. Why is that? Do we expect something different? Maybe it's because we tend to try to ration some back, some portion of our own life for ourselves. The costs mentioned in this passage are not small deposits, but rather a lump sum payment. Both life and legacy. Obedience to death, despite the slanderous reputation that came with it. Jesus didn't say, I'll die on the cross for you, but not unless you all understand and appreciate exactly how much this is costing me. No, the author of Hebrews records that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame that came with it. How are you responding to difficult circumstances in your life, the ones that are costly obedience to Christ? Do you respond with compromise? Or maybe you respond with disdain? 
Or are you responding with joy? I believe that the costly obedience that you are facing today is only a foretaste of what is to come in your life. We need to count the cost. We need to lay it all down at his feet and cling to Christ who is our reward. Maybe there are some here today whose soul has been shaken by the breathtaking humility of Jesus Christ. By the unmatched descent from creator to cross. And you're asking yourself, why would anyone ever do such a thing? The answer, according to scripture, is he did it to pay for your sin. Christ came down being made like us in every way except without sin. And he lived a perfect life of obedience that you fail to live each and every day. And then he suffered the death that your sin earns and deserves. And he did it in your place. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the good news. Jesus died and rose again for your sins according to the scriptures. And he offers you the free gift of eternal life today based on his perfect obedience. Will you surrender your life completely to Christ today? There is nothing that this world has to offer that is worth holding you back. There's no person, no position, no possession that will ever be satisfying enough. Turn from your sin, which leads to death, and trust in Jesus Christ alone, who can save you from your sins, who can give you eternal life with him. We serve an amazing God, and he has clearly told us what it is we are to do. And in the most astonishing way, he has shown us even what it looks like in himself. But not only has he told us, not only has he shown us, but now he's going to watch you do it. And he's helping you each step you take. Servants of Christ must have Christ-like humility. Humility that rejects entitlement, that requires serving, and reveals itself in costly obedience. May God grant us grace to follow the model he has set before us in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, you taught this example to your disciples as well. As their Lord and teacher, you washed their feet. And you wanted them to understand that you were giving them an example. That they also should do just as you had done to them. And Lord, that's what you're calling us to as well this morning. Give us eyes to see our sin clearly by your spirit. And by your grace, Lord, help us to repent, turn from sin, and to make war on our flesh. Sin is hardening in our lives, but you are a powerful God. 
We thank you for your model of humility that you've shown us and called us to. And we ask for your grace, Lord, to walk in obedience to your commands. And as we seek to have a mindset of a servant and loving others sacrificially, it leads to unity in your church, which glorifies your great name. That is our heart's desire this morning, Lord. And we ask that you would do this work by your grace for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.